Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 132nd edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf. And I will be joined, as usual, by my partner in crime from the East Coast of the U.S., Gary Action Jackson. And we appreciate you guys supporting us. You know, it means the world to us that you all tune into our show each and every week. The month of May was great for us. We had a great run there. Of course, we had the two live reviews of Metallica kicking off their M72 World Tour in Amsterdam. It was great to be back in Amsterdam and and great to have the opportunity to to share the highlights with you there. And having Scott Holiday of Rival Sons on was fantastic. Such a cool guy. Such a badass new album, Dark Fighter, which is out now. You guys, if you're looking for new music and it's hard for you to find it, don't hesitate. Go get Dark Fighter by Rival Sons. I think you'll dig it. And you can listen to our episode 130 when we talk with him about to ring and about the new album, Super Guy, and just glad that Rival Sons is in the rotation for us now. Of course, after that, we had a great talk with Terry Reed and George K. of Cosmic American Derelict. So we're on a bit of a roll here with some great guests and some great shows, and we thank you for supporting us. And we think you're going to like what we have in store for you here today, because today we have a fellow podcaster on, but also an author, an author of a book that maybe you might overlook if you just saw it in the bookstore or saw it scrolling through Amazon.com. But I'm telling you, if you're a rock history fan, if you're a rock technology fan, you're going to like The Tormato Story by Kevin Mulrime. Kevin is an Englishman, lives in the Midlands, and has for about a dozen years now been doing the Yes Music podcast. And he's had most every living member of the band on, even some are now no longer with us, and done over 600 episodes just diving deep, deep down into 
every little niche aspect of the band. It shows he has a lot of passion and a lot of knowledge, and he loves to share it with folks all around the world. I was recently listening to him interview John Davidson, their lead singer, about Mirror to the Sky, their new album, uh, and thought it was great. And when I found out he was releasing this book, The Tormato Story, about the 1978 album, which is not everyone's favorite. I mean, I went platinum in the U.S., but didn't have any huge hits. Don't Kill the Whale was a bit of a hit, but usually isn't in a Yes Fan's top five albums of all time. And to the casual rock and roll fan, they might not even know that Tormato exists. So when I found there was a book on Tormato, I'm like, huh, well, that's interesting. Kevin was good enough to send us some advanced copies. And I got to tell you, I love reading this book. It has so much intimate detail about the band being in AdVision and, and RAC Studios in London, where they took the pictures in Regent's Park for the back cover, the instruments everybody used, how they made some of the instruments. The Byrotron, which was something that Rick Wakeman had invested heavily in that was supposed to replace the Mellotron. Unbelievable detail he goes into. The amount of research is amazing. And the photos that they have, because he got a friend who was there in 1978, who got Mickey Most to let him in to Rack Studios and walk around a little bit, also equally amazing because they cleaned him up and you can really see some detail that no one's ever seen before. So even if it's not your favorite album, even if Yes isn't your favorite band, I think you'll like this book, and I think you'll like the conversation we have with Kevin talking about the research he did and some of the fine points that he came up with for the Tormato story. So we're going to jump into that here very shortly. Just a little bit of business first. First, we have to mention that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is a network of about 100 different music shows. Not all rock and roll. There really is something in there for everyone. And you can follow them at Pantheon Pods or PantheonPodcast.com. We actually recently made their top 20 most listened to shows. And so, again, we have to thank you for that. And to help us find other rock and roll fans like you, other potential listeners, please consider going out and giving us a positive review wherever you get your podcast. doesn't really matter where, but wherever you like to listen, wherever you download, subscribe, just take a couple minutes, give us a positive review. It's a huge help to us, and it helps us find more rock fans like you. And of course, we have to mention our fantastic sponsors, RareVinyl.com. Guys, based in the UK, Rare Vinyl has over a quarter of a million items in stock, including a lot of yes items. They have stuff from all over the world, and they ship it all over the world. And you can trust these guys. First of all, look, I've been to their operation. I've met their team. They take great care in procuring and shipping all of your stuff all around the world. They've been doing it for 40 years. They've got a five-star rating from Trust Radius. And right now, if you use the code UGLY, you can save 10% off your orders. Now, I know Father's Day is coming up. Maybe you go in there and find that rare thing, whether it's a first edition or it's a tour program or it's a poster from a record store from back in the day. Whatever it is you're looking for, they probably have it. They've got something you're going to want. So go to rarevinyl.com, use the code UGLY, and save yourself 10%. Tell your loved ones, for Father's Day, don't get me a damn tie. Get me something I want from rarevinyl.com. And use code UGLY, you'll save yourself 10%. Now back to the Tormato story, in-depth read. I really wish I had gotten it before I moved out of London because I would have spent a little bit more time at each one of these spots to better understand how they made this music and who was doing it and when. This may not be my favorite, and it's wedged between a couple that I actually like in going for the one in drama, but that's okay. 
This is how you learn and get a better understanding for music is by talking and sharing with people who have that passion and that deep knowledge like Kevin does for Yes and Tormato. So without further ado, let's jump in. We're talking to Kevin Mulryan, co-host of the Yes Music Podcast and author of the new book, The Tormato Story, right here on The Wolf. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And welcome, welcome to the Ugly American Werewolf in London, although we are stateside now. Yes. And where are you in the Midlands? Yes, I'm in the, right in the middle of the country in Stratford-on-Avon. Oh, very nice. Shakespeare country. Indeed, yes. All right. Well, I'll tell you, Kevin, I, uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on your show. I mean, we're pretty proud that we've been going two and a half years here, but the Yes Music podcast <laughs> is, what, 12 years in the making? It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been quite a thing. It's, it's one of those things that the reason it's gone on so long in a way is because I haven't stopped doing it. You know, you just uh, you get into a, a, a process and into a into a schedule of weekly episodes and you just keep going and keep going. And since since Mark Anthony came, my co-host has, has come on as well. That's that makes it a lot easier when you've got someone, as you I'm sure you know, when you've got someone else to uh, to bounce off. That's, that's really, right. really helpful. So we've been doing that for several years. But but yeah, 20 August 2011, we started. Wow, wow. And then you'll, you'll have more than 600 episodes, a weekly show with more than 600 episodes. And of course, you've had so many characters from the Yes world on over the years, of course, including members of the band, which has got to be a, 
a dream come true. I mean, still to this day, even though you've been doing this long and you've got this great collection and you've met them over the years, it's still got to be great to be able to have a little one-on-one -on -one interaction with a Steve Howe or a John Davidson or whomever over the years. Yeah, it's been great. We've, we've managed to, to get uh, get hold of most most of the members of the band. And we're very, very happy to, to have been able to speak to Alan White, for example, mm -hmm. um, about a year before he died. Uh, so that was fantastic, and and Tony Kay and John Anderson and and various others, uh, including the, uh, the the current members. And it's, mm -hmm. yes, it's a privilege, and they've always been absolutely delightful to us. But we've also enjoyed, as you say, talking to all those people. Uh, you know, for, uh, for example, for the the research for the book, all those mm -hmm. people who've who don't generally get remembered. Uh, so it's been brilliant to talk to all sorts of people and people like us, people like fan. Uh, who are huge fans of the band, but have in-depth knowledge as well. Absolutely. No. And, and this book about Tormato, which I, we're going to have to get into, we're going to have to dive into. I appreciate you sending us some copies for us to peruse before we, uh, before we get on with you here. But I really wish, because <laughs> I, I lived in London for three and a half years, and I wish I'd received this book maybe more than a year ago before I moved away. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because, I mean, obviously I've been out in front of R.I.K. I lived in St. John's Wood. I lived less than a mile from R.I.K. Ah, yeah. Yeah. That picture I took of Mickey Most is blue plaque there. Yeah. I would buy that about once a week. You know, I would drop my daughter off at school and then I'd go to Regent's Park with the dog or to get some exercise or whatever. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's where Mickey Most did some of his damage in there without knowing the full, you know, story. <laughs> or what is it? The, the Macclesfield Bridge. I don't yeah. know. It wasn't the main bridge I walked over, but I certainly walked over it a few times. Yeah. But then to hear the story, to read in your book the story about it. And then to see the picture of them from the back cover, which for what, some reason I always assumed was on Primrose Hill kind of across the street, but I was incorrect about that. And then to see the spot, I'm like, well, I would have gone to that spot, you know, the same picture with you and your buddy that you took there. I'm like, hey, man, I could have done that. So just just knowing some of these spots uh, or, you know, on Talbot Road or whatever, where the, the Yes headquarters were, you know, or, or, you know, where some of the other studios, like I would have gone to Ad Vision. I just wish I'd had it back in the day because the detail you have on here is amazing, sir. Yeah, it was great. And and going round with, with my son, who's a professional photographer, and we went round on, on the thing that I called my own Tormato, where I went mm -hmm. round all the sites in, in London, was fantastic. And what, what really struck us was how how close they all are to each other. Yeah. I mean, there's it, they're all within about a mile and a half, two miles of each other, all these different places in the story, um, even places where the, the guy who created the harpsichord for Madrigal lived in mm -hmm. Pont Street. And uh, that wasn't far away either. So everything was very, very closely concentrated around a sort of central point of Regent's Park, um, as you said, where they, they took, the, uh, took the, the photographs, which you see on the back there. Yeah, um, yeah, it, and it was fantastic to see the places and to to relive some of those things. And I I posed for some photographs and pretended to be the band and yes. and those sorts of things. This was good fun. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And it's it, the detail you go into in here is really extraordinary, Kevin. I, I really have to congratulate you here because you know I had I have aspirations to write a book. It's like well, one day I'd like to share some of my passion and knowledge of of rock and roll, but you have to be, you can't just be, here's what I like in rock and roll. You know, you have to be a little specific. You have to dial down like, okay, so I need to do an era of a band rather than just a band, but, and an album would be great, but which album do I love so much that I could get in the detail that you have here? I mean, talk about digging up all these amazing photos and details about their instruments. I mean, going into the detail on Steve's broadcaster, 
that he used and that he kind of regrets changing because it was one of the original broadcasters, which I guess would become the Telecaster. Yeah. And like, mm. so I, I probably shouldn't have messed that up, but I still got the sound that I wanted. So I don't have any regrets there. And learning about the Byratron, which I want you to kind of tell our listeners about, you know, Rick's venture there and, and its purpose and, and kind of its, its history. It's kind of amazing. I'm like, I don't have the knowledge or the patience to go into the detail on one album like you have here. It's really pretty extraordinary. I mean, amazing for Yes fans, but I think people who like the technology of rock and roll will really love your book. Well, thank you very much. Um, it, yeah, it's it's one of those things, and I was, I was thinking about it the other day when someone asked me a similar uh, question about it, and it, it's two things. First of all, I love digging into things. And mm -hmm. I, I wanted to know what the instruments were, which managed to make these really odd sounds, some of them on the on the record. And, you know, I first heard the record when I was 13 and uh, it blew my mind completely. I never heard anything like it at all. And <laughs> if you think about the sound, for example, that Chris Squire got mm -hmm. um, on this album, he never before or since really did he have this uh, exactly the same kind of sound. So. What was it about his sound and how did he get it and why did he try and do it? And the the North drums that, that Alan White used. Yes. Uh, why did he use those? Just because they looked amazing or was there something else behind it? Sure. And what was this drum synthesizer that I, I saw mentioned? But I, I, there is nowhere that you can see on the album or in the literature uh, that will tell you who created the drum synthesizer and what it was. So I had to dig very deeply to find that. But the thing that you mentioned there, the, the Byrotron is an amazing story. And Chris Dale is the expert who is, has spent many years now working on wrecked Byrotrons mm -hmm. and trying to resurrect the whole thing from start. So the, the basic idea behind the Byrotron was to create a more usable, more reliable, more flexible version of the Mellotron. So right. the Mellotron is the archetypal progressive rock instrument and it creates so much of the atmosphere and and keyboard color of so many of our favorite records but what dave byro wanted to do that's the guy who invented it was to create something that would that would address some of the limitations of the mellotron so as you may know the, the mellotron works on on loops of tape but when you hold down the mellotron keys it can only play for eight seconds eight seconds that's yeah. the length of the tape and once it gets to the end of that tape, it has to rewind itself and you have to go back to the beginning. So that seriously um, reduces the creativity that you can have when you're using a, a Mellotron and it, it makes you play in a particular way. Sure. So what he decided to do was to use, to still use the tape loop idea. And this was before digital days, of course, so that course. it was the only sort of way you could do this. But instead of using a loop of tape, which then had to be rewound, he, he used eight track tapes. So exactly the same tapes as you have uh, in an eight track tape recorder player, okay. they used those. And the idea was to have uh, music shops stocking these tapes. So you could go in and, and buy a new set of sounds for your Byrotron, take it home and stick it in and away you go with a completely new orchestra set of tapes or, or whatever it was that you wanted. And this was a, this was a great idea and he patented the idea and he, showed it to to Rick Wakeman and Rick Wakeman was very very interested in this idea and he thought it was uh, you know it will be a fantastic successor to the to the Mellotron because the tape loop for example is continuous 
in an eight-track player. Right. So if you hold a chord down or hold a note down on a biotron, it will play forever until you <laughs> yes. hands off the off the instrument again. And then it rewinds, uh, right? Uh, uh, no, it doesn't rewind. It just keeps going. Oh, okay. It's a continuous loop tape. Oh, wow. Um, so it will just keep going forever. And that was brilliant. And the fact that you could swap in and swap out those tapes and get an immediately completely different set of sounds that you could play from the Biotron seemed like a fantastic idea. Now, the problem with it was that they were aiming for a, a desktop machine rather than the Mellotron. And, of course, one of the problems with the Mellotron is that every time you try and move it, it's so huge right. and so heavy and so cumbersome. Uh, it just goes out of tune and, and everything goes wrong when you try and move the things. Very, very uh, delicate instruments. So, therefore, there were many, many stories of, of mm -hmm. Mellotrons going wrong in concert. So... Which meant that, because they wanted to make it smaller, neater, easier to, to transport, um, that meant that everything had to be miniaturized. And these were components which had never been miniaturized before. There were only a few companies in the world that could do this work. Everything had to be precision engineered. And components for this, for this Biotron prototype, which had never been created before in the, to the specifications that they needed to be. So it was an extremely long and extremely difficult and excessively expensive process. Right. And good old Rick Wakeman, as he's done so many times in his career, sank loads and loads of mo his own money into this because he thought it was going to be such a, a wonderful instrument. And he, in fact, ended up buying the patent. So if you look in the patent books, Rick Wakeman is, is down as holding the patent for the Biotron in 1978 when Tormata was, was constructed. And however... It, it it failed, and it failed, and I asked Rick about this recently, it failed simply because just around the corner, 1980, 1979, 80, 81, um, digital musical equipment started appearing, right. and so everything based on tape was just immediately obsolete. That's right. So the Biotron company only ever produced a few Biotrons, and they were only ever produced as prototypes. No actual production models were ever produced any instruments at all. So there are only a few Biotrons left in the world. And what Chris Dale has done is, is just amazing. He's, he's collected together all the bits and pieces of broken, smashed up Biotrons and put them together into one working unit. And the other thing he's done, which is even more complicated, is, is to recreate the, the original sounds. So as you can imagine, with 40-year-old uh, eight-track tapes, right. <laughs> they had disintegrated, almost disintegrated completely. So they had to rebuild those. And he's had to digitize the original sounds, patch them up where the gaps are, and create brand new eight-track cartridges uh, with the original sounds on it, on it. So he's taken a huge amount of time, energy, and uh, yeah, he's done an amazing job on that. And so Rick Wakeman doesn't have a Biotron anymore. Chris Dale has got uh, one that, as I say, he's, he's, he's recreated almost from scratch from the... It's kind of Frankenstein it together, yes? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, and that's just one of the instruments on, on the album, which I've become <laughs> somewhat obsessed with trying to find out about how all the instruments were, were put together and how they worked. Well, one thing that, I, that really struck me about this book is you mentioned before, you said, well, you know, you understand how the Mellotron works. Mm. No, I had no idea. <laughs> this book goes into such great detail on stuff like right. that. Well, you well you mentioned you know it had a finite amount of time, and you said if you go back and listen to Strawberry Fields, you yeah. can hear where it runs out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go ahead and do that now because I want to hear that. <laughs> uh, what I really like about this book is that even if you even if you were not familiar with Tormato, even if you 
weren't really a huge fan of yes, you could read this book and get a lot of information, a real deep dive into the instruments that they play, the way that they put this record together, and just kind of the recording, mm. what was happening at the time, both with the band and kind of, you know, records in general. You know, after mm. the punk thing came out, yes was kind of in a strange area as far as what they wanted to do. And th this chronicles how it all came together with what we know as as the album now. Yes, and it it was fascinating and and the person who who really spurred me on to create the book was Peter Willerscroft and I managed to find him so I, his name was is on the back of Tormato and he was the the tape op so it was his job to look after all the all the takes so when you when you think that there were 35 different takes of on the silent wings of freedom and yes. it was his job <clears> to <throat> to keep all those together so when when Chris Squire said, "Oh, yeah, let's 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 take the, the the first two minutes of take six and splice it together with uh, tape thirty-five, it was Peter's job to to make sure that happened. And he, amazing character and, and a lovely guy. And he he came on and and the onto the podcast. And the thing which, as I say, kicked me off was the fact that he wrote diaries of his time at Advision when he was tape op and and everything that he did. And so he has a, a very good set of recollections about exactly what Yes did, how they behaved, how they tried to set up the, the studio in the first place, although it didn't work, um, <laughs> and everything that went into creating those backing tracks at AdVision. Um, so yeah, Peter was an amazing guy to talk to. Yeah, no, and talking about how a lot of people feel that the mix is murky, it's flat. Even Rick is like, you know, this didn't turn out the way it should have. And, yeah. and talking about what they did at AdVision versus RAK, just even though the technical details about, we all talk about the masters. Okay, well, we're going to remaster something, or we're going to put in a new mix. We've got to get the masters to do that. Even him talking about the difference between, and some of the other folks, the difference between the master tape. The, the multi-tracks. The multi-track, yes, thank you difference between master tape and multi-track tape to the average person they're like huh uh, but just <laughs> that difference is huge you know and and where are those then are they in the vaults did they get destroyed in the universal fire are they sitting in chris squire's estate's basement somewhere you know who knows you know but you mr detective have tracked all this down and, and we know mm. this stuff now it's kind of amazing Yes, and that was a great conversation we had with Brian Cahew, and he was responsible for getting the 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 additional, the expanded version, extra songs, uh, which appear on both Tormato, and he also did the the drama expanded and remastered version. He didn't do the remastering; he just did the the hunting around in the in the vaults for anything which was usable, which they could release on those expanded versions. And Brian is a fascinating character anyway because he also put together the progeny box set and so it was his job to he he put together and revamped and remastered all the the progeny recordings which was an amazing undertaking and um, that's slightly off the topic of what we're talking about today but if you have a chance to go and listen to the the episode of the yes music podcast with brian k here it's it's fascinating to see what he did to 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 scrub up those recordings but yes he was the one who who pointed out to me the the differences between master tapes and uh, multi-track okay. tapes mm -hmm. so when Stephen Wilson did the the remasters and remixes critically of the five Yes albums that he did. Right. Um, he was able to go back to the original, not master tapes, but the original uh, multi-track tapes, which meant that he could boost Chris Squire's bass part or choose a completely separate bass, bass uh, take right. and splice that in and make it sound the way he wanted to make it. So that's why there was such 
significant differences between his remaster, his sorry, his remixes and the uh, original. So, in fact, Brian told us that, as you might imagine, in the recording business, master tapes is a bit of a strange term and means different things to different people. Yeah, I didn't realize that. So, master tapes to most people means the the first stereo definitive mix and that's a master tape and they put that aside and they keep it and they might copy it straight away um, and and keep it so that the original intentions are, are always kept and then put it in a vault and and you can go back to it afterwards as opposed to the uh, multi-track tapes which as the as the name sounds are all the individual parts and so when you see something like a documentary like the the classic albums documentaries where they sit at the mixing console and they're able to uh, mess around with the faders and um, listen just to the isolated drums or the isolated whatever's on those tracks. Um, you could do that. So that's what you need in order to fundamentally remix albums, or at least it was until very recently. And the technology which was developed for the the recent Beatles uh, documentary documentary film. That's right. The that technology will in the future allow you to do a lot more in terms of remixing if you don't have the individual tracks. Um, however, that's what we, we are talking about when we say were the master tapes or the multi-track tapes for Tormato lost or destroyed. And Brian Cahew, as I say, had that job of finding uh, additional versions of, of songs and different songs that were released uh, that weren't released on the original album. And so he went into the, the, the Warner Brothers tape vault and he he got those and it was his job as i say to to look for additional things but at the same time he did see the original uh, multi-track tapes for the albums as well so he was able to confirm to us that the tomato uh, multi-track tapes are not lost they are in there and they could be used to to remix the the album if there was ever uh, <laughs> Uh, a, a really compelling reason to do that and uh, you know it's one of those things isn't it is there a is there a compelling reason to do that well only if you could persuade as many yes fans as possible to to buy the right. probably rather expensive new version of tomato if they did do it so there's got to be a commercial incentive to it in the end and i don't think there has has been that combined with the fact that uh, yes themselves uh, the, the members of the band on the record are not particularly keen on the record anyway uh, right. it's probably not going to be at the top of their list to remix you know but it's interesting it, you said in the beginning of this book that i believe you came to this record uh and 90125 at the same time and oliver wakeman kind of said the same thing in, in the foreword that he wrote that that this was kind of the first record that he got into so we talk about this I don't know, phenomenon, I guess, the stuff that imprints on you as uh, when you first start to listen, like you'll always have a special place in your heart for that. Mm. And I kind of feel like from uh, this book, there are people who really do hold this record in high regard just because it is kind of the the one-off. I think you said in the promo mm. stuff for 90125 and Big Generator, they didn't even mention this record. Yeah, which is bizarre. Yeah, like it never happened. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the there were three consecutive um, tour books or tour programs, um, nine one two five, big generator, and then I always forget what the third one is. Uh, talk, the talk sure. or union? Yeah, union, isn't it? I think. Uh, and those three books don't mention 
Tormato as ever having existed. It's left out from the discography. <laughs> and that's partly because at the time Tormato was out of print. So going into oh, a record okay. store, you couldn't have got a copy. But it's also partly because, <laughs> well, you can guess, can't you, on other <laughs> yes. reasons, because the band weren't particularly proud of it. Fortunately, uh, it is back in print, and, and I go through in the book all the different versions, all the different formats which have come out over the years, and I had an, a very amusing couple of days where I listened to, to nine different versions, nine different formats of the album and wow. gave my thoughts about which is the best. I'm, I'm not, I won't tell you um, just now. You'll have to read the book to see That's which right. I think is the best. <laughs> but yeah, it was fascinating to go through all those different formats. And, you know, it's, it's great that, that it has has come back from that, uh, that period of not being released again. And uh, when CDs came about, I mean, it, it, after, it eventually got a CD release. It wasn't one of the first um, tranche of, of Yes albums to, to get that CD release. And I remember buying a copy of, of 90125 on CD. It was one of the first CDs I had, actually. And that, so that was an 83, 84. Um, but Tomato didn't have a release until about 89, I think. Gotcha. On CD. Uh, and of course, now they have all these, as you would call them, bonus tracks. And the fact of the matter is, on the course of doing this record and at both studios, they basically made a record and a half or maybe even two records worth of material and i'm a sucker for a good b-side or an unreleased track that you've never heard on the radio or something like that so yeah they've, they've basically got a whole second record here of all of those which one is your favorite of the additional of the additional right right not not the main tour model but from abilene down to you know the, the extras i mean in terms of the music on it i i quite like the the one with the the dennis healy uh, rick wakeman skit on it um, <laughs> which one is that I've is that the second it. song i'm trying to remember uh, is that money money yeah. of course that's exactly what it is from the point of view of the uh of the the inst what the instruments are doing on that song i that's my favorite one um <laughs> as i say in the book the the comedy routine that that rick does <laughs> over the top of that is 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 best forgotten frankly um <laughs> and it's a shame it wasn't mixed out completely uh in the process because it's um it's uh, yeah, it's it's one of Rick's, you know, and and if you if you sort of multiply what Rick usually does in his comedy by the uh, by the political and <laughs> non PC type nineteen seventy eight, then yeah, it's it's pretty offensive in some ways. But so yeah, the what the musicians are doing on that, uh, what the instruments are doing, I really like. But uh, yeah, not not too keen on the comedy. <laughs> Pink Floyd has a money song. Abba's got a money song. Do we really need one? I don't know. But that's that's grumpy old Rick for you, I guess. I mean, mm. someone who who seems to be upset all the time about something, and yet he's hilarious. He's a very very <laughs> funny man. I mean, what would you how what would you tell us from your interactions with Rick that that maybe the average person might not get from all his funny interviews or TV hostings over the years? What, what did you take away from your conversations with Rick? 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's an extremely generous, as as I have found all the the yes members that I've spoken to over the years. Rick is a, a very very generous character, and he is always uh, he, he always stresses how much he values his time in yes. It's an, he's not one of those people that leaves the band and then slags them off continually. Mm-hmm. He he is very keen on the on the on every iteration of the band because he sees it as a legi- legitimate part of the band's history. So he would never bash a particular lineup. Um, that's not his style at all. And he's most proud, and you can see this by by the fact that he keeps coming back to Yes Music. So his most recent concert series that he's announced for next February, um, he's doing his delve back into yes music and he wouldn't be doing that if he wasn't proud of what he achieved and he was also someone who if you think about when he came back into the band uh, 2002 uh, he was happy to play things like magnification he he mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't bear grudges musically um, at all and that was you know that's one of the things that i that i got from him but also his love of all different kinds uh, of, of music as well and of course he's a classically trained um, keyboardist, classically trained piano player, and digging into his his part on on Madrigal, for example, was was fascinating for the book because because there's a great story about him at the Royal College of Music sneaking in and playing the harpsichord when he wasn't supposed to because you were only supposed to play that harpsichord if you were doing harpsichord as your main study, uh-huh. and he wasn't. He was doing he was doing piano, but he snuck in there anyway and started to play it and. And the story goes that an old guy walked up and uh, asked him what he was doing. And he was saying, oh, I'm playing this harpsichord. And the guy said to him, well, why, why are you playing that particular harpsichord? And Rick said, well, that's because it's a, a Goff harpsichord and they're the best. And it turned out that the guy talking to him was Goff himself, <laughs> wow. his <laughs> instrument. And yeah, it's, it's those sorts of things that alongside the amazing musicianship, the virtuosic um, abilities of Rick. Yes, he's a real person. He's he's a he's a warm, friendly individual. Maybe sometimes uh, people don't like all of his uh, comedy, as we've just been talking about. But that's sure. fine. That's just one of those things, isn't it? Um, he's a really warm and open and uh, generous person. So when when I was trying to get some comments from him for the book, and uh, I happen to know Oliver, which is his son, and that's that's why we um, we got him to do the the forward. And um, and I only know him through through talking to him on the podcast about his music and his part in Yes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he got straight on to his dad and said, you know, please, please answer these questions that, <laughs> that Kevin has, sent yeah. in. And he was he was very, very um, happy to do so, despite the fact that he was he was uh, rehearsing for another yet another concert tour when when I sent those through to him. So, uh, you know, very generous, very likable, very friendly individual. Well, it's interesting that you bring up that he holds no grudges because I, I've seen him uh, in a, I can't remember what the documentary was. Uh, it was when Chris was still with us. But he's talking about how he's glad about 90125, even though he was not a part of that. He's like, this is the album that has sustained the band and allows yeah. us to continue to, to visit this. I don't feel like Steve Howe is the same way. Uh, and I can tell that he does not like to play stuff that he was not on and he it's just it's not a lot it's not in a lot of their sets uh and it's it's he kind of downplays it and i even on the union tour it's like oh well if they're playing a song from 90125 i'm just going to get off of stage 
I'm like, mm-hmm. well, come on, man. Everyone except you, maybe Steve, has raved about how maybe the Union album was not great because there's really kind of two albums they kind of squished together. But the tour they all love, and you can mm-hmm. see Rick in those videos. He's really interacting with yeah. Trevor Rabin. I'm like, well, he and Trevor were never together. In yes, before Union, but and obviously they have been in, in Anderson, uh, Red Whitman, but. Uh, it's like he didn't know this guy, but it's like he looked like he was having fun with this yeah. guy who's more of a riff master than, you know, the technical prowess of, of Steve Howe. Would, would you agree with what I'm saying? Yes, I, I think you're right. Um, the thing about Steve is that he, you know, musically, he he is very clear about, yes, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what he's prepared to do, what he's not prepared to do. And as you say, he's not keen on playing yes songs that he wasn't on. And frankly, he's not keen on playing some Yes songs that he was on. Yeah. So when I spoke to him about about On the Silent Wings of Freedom, which they brought back, and I very much enjoyed I, I managed to see them last year at the Royal Albert Hall, and it was a fantastic oh, I was there, concert. man. I was there. Oh, you were there. Fantastic. Yeah, I was there. Lisa Wetton sat right behind me. Ah, right. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. But uh, what a special night that was, yeah? It was, it was wonderful. But I asked him specifically why they had left the introduction out. So the one of the best things about that song for me, and I suppose most other Yes fans who like it, is the amazing Chris Squire introduction, the, the bass solo essentially at the mm-hmm. start of that song, and he left it out. And I asked him on the podcast exactly why they left it out, and he was very clear that he was very unhappy with his own playing. Uh, he had, mm. he had uh, improvised those parts at the beginning, he wasn't happy with what was happening between him and Rick Wakeman on that album. And, you know, he was, he's very sure that, that both of them were trying to outdo each other and play in the same sort of oral space as each other and, and all that, all that kind of stuff. And so he's ended up hating what he did himself at the beginning of that song. And so he was very specific. He said, I'm not going to sit down and learn parts that I don't like. Even if they're my parts, even if I created them, I'm still not going to do it and no one's going to persuade me to do it. So <laughs> the rest of the time that I've spoken to him, oh, and, that, and that time as well, but all the times that we've spoken to him, again, he has come over as a, as a really generous, kind individual and, and, and has spoken very openly about the things we've asked him about. But there are, he has boundaries, doesn't he? You know, yes. he, he won't go past that. And, you know, in some ways, I think he's right. So the first time I saw Yes was on the Open Your Eyes tour. So I'm, I'm relatively, relatively recent. That was in 1998. Um, and yes, he handed over to Billy Sherwood, who at the time was playing some guitars and some keyboards uh, right. for the band rather than bass, as he does now, of course. Uh, he handed over to him for the, for the owner of Lonely Heart solo. And I thought that was a, a very good plan actually because because steve when he does that sort of a solo and he grudgingly has done the that solo and and that's uh, trevor rabin's song he puts his own stamp on it he tries to play it in his own way but it, frankly i don't think it really comes off brilliantly mm-hmm. and so he he knows what he's capable of he knows what he likes doing so in the end uh, i don't blame him for not wanting to play things that he don't doesn't think shows his abilities off so you know that's that's fine but as i say he's always been absolutely delightful to us when we've interviewed him talking about steve howe one of the things that really struck me in the book was the the talking about all the different guitars that he used but especially the les paul 
and kind of going down that rabbit hole, uh, there's a gentleman who bought it <laughs> yes. a couple of years ago and actually has a YouTube video where he takes it apart. Yes. And it's like 25 or 30 minutes long. I watched every <laughs> second of that. Yeah. Like, really? Whoa. And then this. And then he goes through every single part. But but the coolest thing is is when he's showing you, I don't know what fret it is, the, the 12th fret or whatever that's got the eye. It looks like it's an eye. Mm. And you can see that on the Heat of the Moment video. Mm. And you can see it in the uh, Don't Kill the Whale also, that well, the guitar itself. Mm. And to think that was, it wasn't a model. It wasn't the same. It was exactly the same guitar that made those yeah. sounds. We yeah. are huge Asia fans here That's on right. this show. Right. Yeah. And, and to think that that was the guitar that made those sounds, it's just, I mean, it, it, again, I'm going back to the fact that this book, and lead you down a lot of different rabbit holes. If you want to nerd out on like technology or <laughs> it, it gear, anything like yeah. that, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. 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 Well, we loved speaking to Fernando Podomo, who came to talk, mm -hmm. to, talk to us about the guitars. And uh, he's he's such an enthusiastic guy. We, we couldn't shut him up. He just kept going <laughs> and going and going about the guitars. And, and we've only talked to him about Steve Howe's guitar, uh, guitars, of course, and on on Tomato specifically, but we, we need to have him back on the show to talk about, about Trevor Rabin's guitars, which he knows about. And he's also a, a huge fan of, of Peter Banks and knows everything there is to know about his guitars. So that, you know, that's going to be another amazing, amazing experience. But the, in terms of the basses as well, just talking about, about um, guitars generally uh, for the book, um, we spoke to Miguel Falcao, who is an amazing, amazing bassist himself and has done um, dozens and dozens of, of bass covers of Chris Squire. And um, I took up the, the bass guitar myself because, because I saw what Miguel was showing me about Chris Squire. Uh, so I got hold of a bass and started copying Miguel's uh, covers of, of, of Chris Squire. But yeah, Miguel went into, a, again, a huge amount of detail about the Rickenbacker bass and uh, the Thunderbird bass that, that also appears on Tormato. And but not only that, the the board, the the effects board, and mm. the uh, the bass pedals that that Chris Squire used. And what kicked me off with that was Dave Watkinson um, took a photograph of the setup of the Tormato bass setup when he was when he visited Rack Studios in 1978 and was left by Mickey Most to, to roam around with his brother in the studio for about two and a half hours before Yes turned Unbelievable. up. Unbelievable. That's and a great story. It's, 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 it's an amazing, amazing story. And Dave's a, a wonderful, a wonderful guy. But what we did was we, we managed to persuade Dave for the first time since 1978 to, to digitize those photographs. Mm. And we saw a huge amount more detail in those photographs than had ever been seen before. So 1978 analog snapshots, um, which have been scrubbed up specifically for this book. And so we can see exactly what the pedals were, exactly how it all fitted together that, uh, that, that Chris was using there and on, on stage on the Tomato and the, and the um, Ten True Summers tours. So we know exactly what he was doing and exactly how he got those sounds, which is what, which is what um, uh, Miguel Falcao helped us with so yeah that so many people have helped us to understand more about the album hi this is jeff downs you're listening to the ugly american werewolf 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's an amazing in-depth book. I mean, it's a real detective work on your part to, to piece all of this together. And that's why I think even if you're not a huge fan of Tormato, you like, yes, but you're not, you're going to love this book. And, and even if you're not like Jackson said, you may not even have to be a huge yes fan, but if you like to, to get in depth about how these things are made and, and where they're made and the sounds they came out, you're going to love it. I mean, I, I totally recommend it. I, and I do want to get into the tunes a little bit here with you uh, because I mean, I, Look, I, I bought the, the the yes, like you know, all the discs remastered in a little clamshell kind of thing with the new Roger Dean artwork on it. So you know, I've listened to Tormato and the bonus tracks uh, a couple times over the years, not <laughs> as many times as you have. <laughs> no. But and, and I think most people know "Don't Kill the Whale" because either they've heard it on the radio. I mean, it got into the top forty in the UK back in the day. Um, it was a big hit. Well, it was it was a bit of a hit for them over the years. But I mean, some of the, the work on here, even though the mix kind of turned some people off, there's still some amazing stuff on here, like Magical, you know, mm. with Rick playing the harpsichord, you know, it's a little Baroque medieval, an incredibly short song for a yes song, but mm. beautiful. Uh, and I still think it fits. And you can say, well, that's a weird one. I'm like, well, not for yes. UFO is kind of a weird, right? Mm. I mean, or, or Circus of Heaven. Mm. That's a weird one, right? You know, I mean, uh, I I like, uh, and I think it ends very strongly. A lot of people like, okay, the last few songs, we'll just put the worst couple songs at the end. But I think Onward, which is a Squire composition, which is kind of amazing, is the second to last song. And then we mentioned on the Silent Wings of Freedom, which they brought back for the last tour, is an, an amazing way to finish this album. Very strong, the last two songs, where you know, whereas there's a couple of odd ones before that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think there's a, a, a lot of a lot of gems in there, and I think people do do tend to focus on uh, arriving UFO and Circus of Heaven. And uh, yeah, okay, they they are odd. They certainly yeah. are odd. And Fernando's Fernando Podomo's comment about the album to sort of sum it up was he he said that the the over overriding feeling you get from it is quirky, and I think that's a good word. Uh, but the problem is that they weren't going for quirky. Yeah, <laughs> they, they were, <laughs> and so so things like Circus of Heaven definitely ended up not being quite as they had hoped it would be. I think, and obviously driven by John Anderson and his lyrics in that and arriving UFO are are some of the oddest lyrics that he ever came came up with. And um, and I enjoy sort of digging into those those lyrics and the way they work and the way they work with the with the sound um, that was created. I actually quite like Arriving UFO. It's, it's very definitely, you know, 1978 and those, those synthesized very early, very, very early synthesized drums mm -hmm. and effects that are on there. But yeah, we have to remember that, that that was science fiction in 1977, 78 was huge. Right. Because you, you had Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Star Wars the year mm -hmm. before Tomato came out, so it was very much top of everyone's 
minds. So I think it was a good, or it should have been a good sort of marketing ploy to include to include those in there. And and of course, on the Tormato tour, they they played uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind theme music to introduce the the concerts. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we're more more used to uh, Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra and yeah. Firebird. Um, but but yes, they changed it up for that. And I think that was all around this idea of science fiction and, and fantasy. to behold Vessels of a different impression None that we could ever hope to have known So look out And it's very trippy and, and proggy in some parts and they're playing with all everyone's playing with their, their new toys on this when you can kind of tell and Rick's trying yeah. to make some, some cool stuff It's just, I, you know I was surprised to find that, that Steve co-wrote this because he's not super prominent at least I, I don't always hear him no. that well in this mix, you know. No, no, no. You're right, and and well, I mean, when we've spoken to various people on the podcast about about writing credits, they always point out that it's really <laughs> for convenience. It's really to make sure that they've split up the the royalties um, sensibly. So, mm-hmm. did did the people named actually write the bulk of those songs? We will never know. But <laughs> yeah. so uh, so yeah, that's that's one point. But yes, you're right. That 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 is true. That he's not he's not particularly prominent on that song. Just about magical though. Uh, I think that's a, a fascinating song, and and I think Rick is still keen on what he did there. Mm. And um, we spoke to a guy called James Gardner about about magical and about the use of the harpsichord, which has then sent me. On another down another huge rabbit hole about <laughs> harpsichords and how they work and the development of them and and the, the Thomas Goff harpsichords and all that, but and that's that's I found that all absolutely fascinating and and, and wonderful, but that I think something that which is easy to overlook on Tomato is the orchestration. So the orchestration was was done by Andrew Price Jackman, who also did the orchestration on Fish Out of Water, Chris's classic solo oh, album yeah. and i was fascinated because i've always loved that orchestration so there's some strings on on madrigal and and also on on onward of course onward with the french horn solo there as well and i've always loved that stuff but when i mentioned it to to rick wakeman he's actually I, which i didn't realize he he had intended to do those orchestrations himself yeah. and he was rather upset that he didn't get the chance to so again, what what would that have done to the to the album? <laughs> right. How different could that have been if he'd got his hands on the orchestrations? And so you know, he, he views it as water under the bridge, as it's forty five years ago. Uh, but but no, he he really wanted to do that himself. But I've always loved that, and I think that's onward would be a great, beautiful love song without that. But I think adding that orchestration and particularly the French horn solo, I think uh, elevates that song. Mm-hmm. much much further than it would have been and I, I, I just love it and of course you can't think about onward now without without imagining in your mind's eye the the tributes to to chris squire his his rickenbacker bass in the middle of the stage with a single spotlight on it that was yeah. it was very deeply affecting that and a great 
of course, great loss of both him and and Alan White. But but yeah, and that there are some real powerhouses, aren't there, on on the album? Mm. Which again, think I think people forget. So release, release, future times rejoice itself, and the the last song, the, uh, on the silent wings of freedom, are all really strenuous, and that's why a lot of those songs didn't didn't survive very long to play live because they were just. They were too frenetic. There was too much in them. There was too much energy in, involved in in recreating those live, and uh, which is a shame because I I think I think those are real rocking numbers and and would would stand up very well in a in a yes concert today even. <laughs> Said my friend of the distant life Covered in greens of a golden age Set in stone, follow me He sounded of dreams supreme Follow me, drifting within the glow And the afterglow of the eve And if that firelight I could match the inner flame Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, release, release. I mean, wasn't it a single in Canada, maybe? Yeah, so this is... I've got into trouble on on uh, on social media by mentioning this. People have got very upset with me for some reason. Uh-huh. I don't know why? Anyway, so the 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 single um, "Don't Kill the Whale" was released in the UK and most other places with um, Abilene on the B side, right. and that's how it was. However, in the US, in the US, the the B side was release release. Uh-huh. So, and if you look at something like the the promo copy of of the single in America, it doesn't have a side A and a side B referenced at all. Oh. So maybe at some point the idea was to have it released as a double A side. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure; it's not clear. But certainly, any anyone that you speak to um, from the US and say, you know, what what was the single from Tormato, they'll always say it's "Don't Kill the Whale," which is fine. But officially in Canada, they were swapped around, and um, release release was the A side in Canada and uh, uh, Don't Kill the Whale was the B-side and that was the same in uh, the Philippines, allegedly. I've never been able to confirm that in the same way as I've never been able to confirm that there is a, a 12-inch version of the of the single. It's written down somewhere, but that doesn't make it true. Right. Um, and I've certainly never found a copy of it. So yes, yes, release, release. Uh, I think could have been another great single. I I would have preferred there to be at least two singles from the album myself. Well, I guess yeah, they tried to play it live, and they're like, mm. yeah, we're gonna swap this out for something else, which is yeah. too bad because you know, I mean, obviously it was the part where they pipe in the the audience noise, the, the cheering yes. fans or whatever, so Alan can do his drum thing. But that's killer. I mean, what Alan did was great, and then this sick bass from Chris. At the end, I'm like, yeah, this is very yes. This is mm. this this absolutely fits in their whole catalog. They should have tried to play this live, but I guess it was it was just a, a bit of an undertaking. They said we've got other stuff we can do, which obviously yeah. did. Yeah, 
Speaking of playing live, uh, what I didn't realize is that this was one of the first times they'd ever, anyone had ever incorporated a round stage into a rock star yeah. show. We mm. uh, we went and saw Def Leppard on the, I think it was the 92 Adrenalize tour where they used that. And we thought, oh, this is the first, you know, Def Leppard was the first. Nope. That <laughs> yes, had beat them to the punch. Um, it, just interesting thinking about how it how it played out. Not only getting getting the the fans a better view of the band, but also selling more front row tickets mm. was it was an interesting idea too. Yeah, so this was Michael Tate who came up with the idea for the the rotating stage. Who was the the lighting and and scenery and had all, all those sorts of things and and is a legendary figure now really for for those aspects of of concerts. But he it, it was his idea for the rotating. The rotating stage and part of it he's quite quite open about it nowadays was that you could have a an immensely long front row mm -hmm. and one of the photographs that i've got in the in the book shows that you know, so yeah. many more people are close to the stage as right. close to the the action as it were and fascinating that they that they brought it, the concept back for the union tour um, because again they wanted to get as many people as possible close to their heroes and I think it, I think it went really well. I mean, it, it did break down once or twice, of uh, very famously that they, <laughs> they got the <laughs> quite handy to have that very large number of people right close to the stage because they managed to get them to, to come and, and, and rotate the stage when the machinery broke down. And so the, the whole of the front couple of rows was empty uh, because the, the fans were pushing the stage. They were actually turning the stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> But yes, it's a it's a fascinating thing, and the 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 other one that I know a lot of, uh, not not a lot about, but the, the other one I know of is the the Peter Gabriel rotating stage from many years later, and it's fascinating to to see the differences between those two stages. But of course, for the roadies, it was a nightmare because they were underneath the stage <laughs> for the whole well, of the. the that was the other the thing too. It famously the the Def Leppard stage had a lot of room underneath the stage for all kinds of shenanigans mm. uh but it didn't look like the yes stage like i guess they had to no. kneel or something yeah. and it, it looked very uncomfortable yes they had to kneel and eventually there was a, a bit of a, a protest from the the stage hands <laughs> underneath the stage because they were kneeling and crawling around literally crawling around for the whole time and in those days of course yes uh, shows were rather longer than they are um recently uh, <laughs> but they were crawling around and eventually they said look we're not going to do this anymore unless you put some carpet in for us to yeah. <laughs> protect our knees a bit better so they they did actually put some carpet in un under there for them but uh, again something else uh, jeremy north is a, a friend of mine who went to the i suppose it was the yeah it was the first time that that stage was ever used was in wembley the wembley concerts in 1978 and he took some amazing photographs of that concert and again we digitized those and we were able to zoom in much further than than had previously done uh, been done and you can see a, a, a hatch there, there were some grills mm -hmm. in the stage where which could could be popped open and and they could hand guitars out and so on but there's a a bit like uh, that you see in the footlights in a in a theater there's a there's a little hatch and in one of his photographs you can see the head of one of the roadies yeah. <laughs> which is really fascinating to see to see him there and so that was a kind of spy hole that they had they could stick their head up through this gap and see what was happening on stage and make sure everything was going well 
So yeah, it was a, a fascinating thing, and that they kept using, of course, on the um, the drama tour. They used the same same stage, but they they did. And I'll, I'll, I won't tell you that story because I think that's a great story um, about how they they managed to appear. The band appeared as if by magic in the on the top of that rotating stage for the for the drama tour because uh, they had always intended to do that. So for the Tormato and the uh, Ten True Summers tour with the with the with the um, rotating stage, the band wanted to appear as if by magic on the stage and were not having to walk through the audience like they did in the end. And this was all part of their concept of the Eleventh Illusion, which was the which was the uh, uh, working title of Tormato mm. before they settled on Yes Tour and then Tormato. That's another story. Yes. Um, but uh, but yes, yeah, so they had this idea of of creating visual illusions. Um, but they didn't manage to do it for that tour, but they did manage to do it on on the drama tour with a rather different lineup of the band, of course. Yes, yes. And so just quick side question here for you, because uh, when Union came out, I was kind of fascinated. And that's when Jackson and I were like graduating from high school, going into college, starting to become friends. The, the fact that they had this in the round spinning thing was, was fascinating to me. It's like, I wasn't a huge Yes fan at that time, but I thought that would be a killer show to see. Now, I have seen video. They released a video, but I think it was from Miami or Sunrise, Florida, where they did the end stage. They did not, the video does not have the in the round. Is there an in the round video from that tour that you have access to or that you've seen? I, I'm pretty sure that there there is some video. I don't know how. I don't think it's officially released. No, I don't, yeah. I don't think there's an official one. But yes, that's something else to dig into, isn't it? Yeah, I'm ah. sure I have seen. I'm sure I have seen a video of that of that round stage, which was not the same round stage, of course. They created a new one, but uh, but yeah, fascinating stuff. And and fascinating that now there is one venue. I forget the name of it now in the US, which is permanently set up as a as a rotating circular stage. And yes, did play there quite recently. Interesting. Well, I'd love them to do an official release. It's a fascinating time for the band. I mean, it's. It's the one lineup where you kind of have to have something like that because you, you kind of have two of everything. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, there's, you know, two drummers, two keyboards. It, it makes sense to, to give everybody a, an opportunity to see everybody. So yeah. I just wish they would. I mean, and I'm not a huge fan of the album Union. I don't know that anyone in the band is. I don't know how many fans really are. But that tour was, was something special that I think everyone really enjoyed, except for maybe our friend Steve Al. That's, mm -hmm. that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> well. There you go. Uh, well, listen, Kevin, I thank you so much for, for spending some time with us here. And congratulations on the book. I, I think it's very well done. It's incredibly well researched. And even the photos can give you some great detail that not everyone has seen before. Why don't you tell everybody where they can get it and how they can order it? So here it is again. Yes, the Tomato Story by me and with the forward by the wonderful Oliver Waitman. So that's the, the, the book. Now, if you're in the... EU or in the UK, the best way to get hold of a copy is via the Burning Shed uh, website because they have been doing the pre-order for me and have been sending them out. Now, if you're overseas from me, um, of course, the, the postage and packing is quite expensive. So you might want to buy it from a local store. So Amazon have got copies, although uh, it only went live on Amazon on Friday and Amazon, bless them, take quite some time to to catch up properly so if you go on your local amazon store you might 
find it there and easily available. You might have to wait a little bit, a few days for them to get their act together. It's, it's a print-on-demand book, which means that it'll be printed locally to you if you buy it from an online store and, uh, you know, therefore saving all the carbon and all that. And it certainly won't run out. They, won't, they will never run out. They are printed to order. But the other thing about the book is that because it's printed uh, on demand, there's, there are only black and white photographs in it because it was just vastly expensive to do it any other way. Sure. So what I have done is created this supplement, which I've called Colour Supplement, which has got a lot of the important colour photographs from the book reproduced. So, for example, there's a whole spread about the Byrotron there. Okay. And the photographs from Dave Watkinson of, of the band in, in Rack Studio. So this is, uh, this is a nice accompaniment to the main book, and that's only available from me directly. So if you go to uh, tomatobook.com, you can order yourself a copy of that. So the, the, two, the two items really go together. So it may well be that I, that I make that available online um, in a different way in the future, but at the moment, tomatobook.com is the only way of getting hold of that supplement. Gotcha. And of course... Yes, music podcast. You can get anywhere you get your podcast, and I assume you have no plans to quit that anytime soon. No, I don't see why. I don't see why we would. It's <laughs> it's going strong, and we've got. I mean, for example, we've got an interview I did for the book with this guy Derek Dearden, who created the drum synthesizer, and that's that's waiting to come out. So that's going to be with us in a couple of weeks' time. And you know, there are 55 or whatever it is, years of yes history to talk about. So that's that's how we've managed to keep going for, for 12, 13 years. And yeah, yeah, no reason to stop us yet. Thank you so much for joining us. And many successes with the book, man. It's, it's fantastic. It's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. that time flew by jackson we didn't even get into the hypnosis cover or the we, we he barely touched on the fact that it was going to be called yes tour and then they changed it to tormato because of rick or whoever it was who threw the tomato at the uh at the proof that hypnosis had done yeah 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 that's but we have to respect his time so that may be for another episode who knows but just an interesting deep dive into a into an album that a lot of people don't really pay much attention to outside of hardcore yes fans yeah and you gotta believe that this is i would say that this is the lineup like if, if anyone's gonna say what's your favorite yes lineup or if you could just have one lineup what would it be maybe there would be some people who would say they would prefer bruford to white but alan was in the band for basically 50 years mm. uh, so didn't play on all of their albums but but most all of them, but, you know, having Rick in the band is amazing. Obviously, Chris Squire would be the only bass player anyone would choose. Mm -hmm. Steve Howe's got to be the number one guitar player. And, of course, John Anderson, I mean, until, what was it, 2008 or six or something like that, there was only one album that didn't feature 
John Anderson on vocals. It was the much maligned drama with Trevor Horn <laughs> from the Buggles. But I mean, that's one that's really grown on me. I would love to talk with him about drama sometime because drama obviously came right after this. And you know, a lot of people are like, different singer, forget it. I don't want to know about it. And, and I was probably that way at first, but there's some amazing yes stuff on. It. And Jeff is obviously fantastic. We love Jeff Downs, but Trevor does his best. On the record, he did fine. I think it was live and it started to struggle. Yeah, and that is an interesting concept too, because you can go through a lot of different bands who maybe had a an album or two with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that comes to mind is Motley Crue. There was a there was an album in ninety two or ninety three with yeah. John Karabi on it that just got destroyed. But then you go back even, and you listen, yeah. you're like, hey, this really isn't that bad of a record if you if you can kind of separate it out. Yeah. And I think that was, you're right, with drama, if you give it a chance and you don't go into it with, like you said, oh, if it's not the original guy on there, I don't want to hear it. Uh, it would be interesting to, to to get Kevin's take on that. And also the take, you were talking about, you know, the, the hypnosis cover going back to Roger Dean for drama. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it that they, you know, they went away for going for the one and Tormato, they yep. said, okay, we don't need Roger anymore. We need to change it up. We'll go to these guys, Hypnosis, who have done all sorts of amazing covers, and yep. in the prog world, obviously. So, like, I understand most people don't have the exact same person on all their covers anyways. You know, it makes sense, but I don't know. It's just Roger is so tied to it, you know, and Steve yep. obviously has a, a huge relationship with him as he, I, I guess I can't say he opens for the band now, but he introduced the band on the last tour, and, and for the Steve Howe album, he obviously did the cover for that. What's that? Seventy nine or something. Well, and then he did he did the Asia stuff, and then he did. I'm pretty sure he did the Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe cover also. Absolutely. So, like yeah. any. So to me, always anything. Yes, was Roger Dean. Look, being able to read this book gives me a real appreciation for this album. I mean, and honestly, I like going for the one better, and then I obviously I like drama better, mm-hmm. and then it's a different era of the band. You could say in the eighties. So this one, to me, I always overlook this one, to be perfectly honest with you, despite the fact that they have the, the lineup that I would say that I appreciate it the best. But it takes a, a super fan like Kevin, right. who came to this as a young man and it imprinted on him. And he's like, this is incredibly interesting. This is a very cool part of their history. And he wants to know, he's like us, he wants to know all the little details, <laughs> you know? And his right. detail work on here is outstanding. It's it's really fascinating everything that he had covered. And and it really it it just it one rabbit hole leads to another rabbit hole to it, it just get into the minutia of how you know how they made the record, what was going on at the time, you know, going from one studio to another, the different instruments, the kind of the tension in the band. It really makes for an interesting story of how this thing came to came to be. Yeah, and we didn't even get into like the back cover, you know, which they had their yes jackets on, but Squire didn't bring his because he was and he was late anyway, which seems to be his mo. Um, but uh, you know, just all these little kind of details about it, it, it makes for great reading. And if you're like us who like these strange facts or, or hard to find details, this is a fun read, and it's mm-hmm. and it's one that you can do pretty quickly. I mean, I read it in a couple of days, just kind of ripped through it. Well, and the, the nice part too is that there are a lot of photos in there, which help too. I mean, you look at it, you're staring down 370 pages. You're like, mm, that's a lot. But the the photos take up a lot of space on the pages in some parts. But it, they also they also really add to you know when he's talking about this setup. To right. see it, like, like there was one about Steve Howe's, uh, you know, he used Fender 
amps. Right. And to see the picture of it actually set up. Okay, now I see what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, he, like you said, the photos were digitized. So now you can zoom in some stuff and you can see some of Chris Squire's, you know, technical equipment there or whatever. And, or be able to zoom in on Jen Anderson's 10-string guitar, you know, or or whatever it might be. Uh, like, yep. okay, here's the rack of all of Steve's stuff. Here's the North drums. Wow, that's cool stuff, man. And it just seems like it's nowhere else, right? right. You can't find that anyplace else. And, and the thing about, you know, the the everybody's got their own setup. This is the way I want my my world to be. And then the sound engineer has to come in and say, sorry, fellas, this is not going to work. We've got to move this stuff around. You can't put this here because we need to get everybody recorded and not just one person. And then right. people get, you know, feelings get hurt. And it's just that I don't envy the the guys who had to put this all together to try and manage the sound, the songwriting and everybody's egos. I don't know if egos is the right word, but everybody's uh, personality while yeah. making this record. Well, I mean, they basically didn't have a producer. Right? I mean, yeah. Eddie offered kind of split at some point. And so then, okay, we're self-producing. You got five songwriters <laughs> self-producing a collaborative <laughs> album. I mean, no wonder there's 35 takes, you know, of, on the Silent Wings of Freedom. I mean, no wonder, man, because everyone <laughs> has veto power over every note. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, it, you need a dictator sometimes, you know. You, you do, yeah, you do. <laughs> you have to have somebody to, yeah, to to uh, to drive the, you know, drive the bus and tell and tell them, no, the, I, I understand what you're saying, but this is what we're doing. We're using this take. This is how it's going to sound. This is over. We're moving on to the next thing. And then you see their success in the 80s with Trevor Horn at the helm producing. Mm -hmm. No, he's not singing anymore, but now he's in the chair telling you what to do. Yeah. I'm sure that would rub some people the wrong way, but look at the results they got, at least the sales that they got, even if you don't love all those albums, and I don't love Big Generator. Uh, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was trying to do something besides what we call classic yes, is what I right. would say. And, and I really, I like that story about, he, like Kevin was talking about uh, Rick Wakeman saying, yeah, you know, he was not on 90125 or Big Generator, but he, he, appreciates the fact that that success well of 90125 carried the band for a long time and, and probably still does to some aspect and he can appreciate that and be positive about it even though he wasn't involved with it yeah yeah absolutely and I, i'm regretful that i never got to see rick play with him i have seen oliver play with them mm -hmm. rick was supposed to play with them on this tour when benoit david was their singer at the time in the 2000s and uh rick couldn't do it or he, he had some kind of illness he's like you know, but you know what oliver can do it and so i was like bummed oh no rick i'm like oh but oliver's more than he's pretty good yeah, yeah. it's not <laughs> like he's some b-level replacement you know he's, he's pretty <laughs> awesome but i mean to, to the point that i was talking with kevin about they did play owner of a lonely heart on that and i don't think steve played it <laughs> And I don't know if he's trying. I don't know why he would try to play it badly. He's he's playing it in his own way. But see, some of the the discussion in the book about why does he use those hollow body hollow body ES one seventy fives because he's not a riff master. He has very precise, you know, yeah. stuff. So that's why he doesn't have the Marshall amps. It's why he has the Fender amps mm -hmm. because you have to clearly hear each note. And then, even though he had to do a little bit of that in Asia when Trevor was in the band, then. It's a different sound, you know, it's it's kind of very different, but it's not just playing style, it's due to a lot of equipment that Kevin goes very in depth on. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just two different styles of playing just, and, and the interesting part about how he was always, how was always against distortion. Distortion was kind of, you know, it lets you hide. Exactly. Kind of maybe fudge a little bit of a note and his stuff is so clean that you can't make a mistake. Well, that's right. It's incredibly precise. (laughs) And and that's why he won guitar player of the year in that British poll of five or six years in a row, because a lot, you know, offense to Richie Blackmore, a lot of people could do, some what he does not everyone can do what steve does certainly right. not live right right but but to go back to that uh the guy taking apart the his les paul to hear him the 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 owner at the time hit those heat of the moment chords on mm-hmm. the actual guitar and that sounds pretty good i know i know it's, <laughs> it, it was another amazing video it's like okay so he bought a guitar so what it's like nothing you can go all through this thing and show all the differences i mean and just talking about the broad i didn't even know the story that the Telecaster was originally the broadcaster. Right. And then they got in trouble with Bratch or somebody like yes. that. So they had a drum set that was the broadcaster, yeah. So, yeah, and so because so, television was now a big part of life or becoming a big part of life, like, all right, let's call it the Telecaster. Never yeah, do that. If you can, if you can find that, I think what's his name's got at least one of those John Five because he's a big Telecaster guy. Okay. He's got a couple, at least one broadcaster from I think 1950. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is like the holy grail of you know because it looks exactly the same. It just instead of Telecaster, it says broadcaster on the top of it. But it's that I I really wonder if how is is sore that he got rid of that one. Right. Well, I, I think he was sore at himself for messing with it. Like I mean, I think yeah. he got the sound he wanted out of it. But to have one of those original broadcasters is there's some value to that, right? Not to yeah. mention it's kind of a piece of art almost. Mm-hmm. So he he and he could probably afford to go get, you know, one of the originals if he really wanted to now. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't have that book, Steve's book of his guitar, so maybe he does, but just all around fascinating. And we didn't even touch on all the fascinating parts. Only so much you can do in an hour. So right. I would encourage fans to go out and get that book because yeah. it'll be your mind will be blown at some of the detail he uncovers. And and like you said, even though it's very technical, it gets into a lot of the minutia. It is actually a very easy book to read. Yeah, it's not. It, he puts it together in a way where he gives you enough, and then he kind of tells you the story of the of the you know the recording, and then back to uh, the different uh, equipment. And he's got a he's pretty much got a chapter for all of the the guys. You know, you've got the guitar yeah. the the keyboards the bass and the drums, drums yeah it was it yeah it, it went by pretty fast it was very fascinating and you know we we watched the get back documentary and you think oh you know the beatles albums and then we talked about the dark side of the moon but mm-hmm. all of these records had huge amounts of production put into them and time and just the way that that it gets put together yeah i could i could have read two books on that yeah yeah, on, on, on the album that, I mean, hey, no Roger Dean art, Kill the Whale is a good song, but it's also kind of a prose song. I, you know, I got to go around singing, Don't Kill the Whale. You know, I don't know about that. <laughs> and, and it's got the odd ones on there. You know, it's like if you want to listen to three Yes albums, I mean, I would I would almost never pick that one. Right. But, you know, whereas there's 10 or 12 others that I would rotate in and out. But that one, never. Well, that that's part of your problem, too. When you put out so much prolific music, you're going to have one that kind of misses with the audience but it doesn't mean that that you can't find interesting tracks on there but it still went platinum in the united states which is also kind of amazing too in the age of punk with a single it's kind of a hippie protest don't kill the whale song now i know they toured the heck out of it and that always helps and they're playing 
arenas and even stadiums yeah. at, at that point. So when you've got that many people coming to see you, it's not shocking that you could sell a million copies. Right. J- yeah. Just on the name alone. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and you've got this killer lineup and they toured the heck out of the U S on going for the one. I mean, it was like 85 pages, something crazy like that. Maybe that wasn't all U S but that's more detail. That's in the book and wondrous stories had done well from the previous album. So maybe it's like, Oh, everyone's like, yeah, we like that one. We'll pick up this one as well. Plus I think it was like a 10 year anniversary kind of tour. Cause you know, their, their first album came out in 68. Oh, okay. So yeah. Yeah. 10 years of yes. That probably helped. Cause everyone's like, Oh yeah. I like some of the old stuff and this is doing all right. Well, I'll pick that up. But I mean, it's, it's no mean feat to go platinum in America. And, right. and this one, despite any huge hits, did. our chat with Kevin Mulrine, author of The Tormato Story and co-host of the Yes Music Podcast. Super fan of Yes, obviously, and very nice guy and a very smart guy who did a lot of research on this book, folks. Like we were saying during the show, you don't have to be an enormous Yes fan to enjoy this book and to enjoy all the knowledge that it can give you about the technology of rock and roll and the instrumentation. Really a fun read. Some great graphics and pictures in there for you and can bring to your attention an often overlooked piece of the Yes catalog. Yeah, I mean, I got to admit that we do a lot of reviews on albums that are on their 50th or 40th or 45th or 35th anniversaries here. We like those round numbers. Tormato didn't really make our list until I saw that Kevin was doing this book. I said, you know what? We can give that record a listen and we can give him a chance to bring his book to our listeners and try to spread the word on why he loves this album so much. I mean, versus Close to the Edge, versus Tales of Topographic Oceans, versus Fragile, versus 90125. Most people overlook this one, but it's worth giving a listen. And this book is worth picking up. You know, So go check it out, whether you get it from the yesmusicpodcast.com or you get it from Amazon or wherever you have to get it. Go get it, man. Check it out and give some props to Kevin along the way because he did an amazing job researching this, reviewing this, putting all sorts of amazing detail into this book for you. And as usual, we want to know, folks, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? You have got to let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can let us know the albums, the bands, the concerts, the DVDs, the books, the rock properties that you want to hear us talk about. And, of course, you can follow us on social media. We're biggest on Twitter. It's at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. We're also on Instagram at, at Ugly American Werewolf in London. I think we're on Facebook, but not really. We have a YouTube page that you can check out. But we want you to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast, be it Apple, iTunes, Spotify. Good Pods has been very good to us. They gave us a little gold check there, and we made a cool 
playlist of top five classic rock podcasts that you should be listening to. And I think you'll recognize some of those names if you've been listening a long time. But wherever you go, wherever you download, subscribe, please consider giving us a positive review. It just makes a huge difference to us. It helps us find more rock and roll fans like you and help us grow the show and help get more quality guests on that you want to hear from. Thanks, as always, to Pantheon Podcast. You can check out the stable of podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. And thanks, of course, to our sponsor, rarevinyl.com, where if you use the code UGLY, you can save 10% off your order. So you want that rare first edition Yes album or something from Japan, whether it's a single or an LP or a tour poster or whatever it may be, go to rarevinyl.com, use the code UGLY, and save yourself 10%. And Burning Shed, where you can get Kevin Mulrine's book, The Tormato Story, is another great place to go for first uh, and new prog stuff. It's a great place. I bought some stuff there over the years. So check it out. Next week, we're going to have another incredible author, one that you will probably know. If you listen to this podcast, you will know the name Mick Wall. He's been a longtime music journalist. He's been doing it for decades and decades. If you ever read Kerrang! magazine, you read his stuff. If you ever read Classic Rock magazine, you read his stuff. If you ever watched a Behind the Music on VH1 over the years, if it was a hard rock band, you probably saw Mick Wall on there. He's a great guy. He's got a new book about the Eagles coming out here soon that we got an advanced copy of that's very good, and we'll be talking to him about that next time. So until the next time, to all you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.